Welcome to the St. Eminens Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. This episode of the podcast is an incredibly special edition, featuring edited highlights of a webinar recently hosted by Professor Rick Boddy and colleagues as part of the University of Manchester and RCHEM COVID-19 CPD Journal Club. There will be six papers presented. One is a deep dive and five more quick reviews, all for your educational pleasure. The panel is astonishing, with four professors, including two of clinical and medical virology and two clinical research fellows. So you're getting top quality analytical minds giving you the best information. There'll be more content like this coming from St. Emlyn's. If you enjoy this, please do subscribe. And if you feel the love, then do rate us on iTunes. I'm never sure what it means, but people tell us that it's a good thing. Due to the nature of the event, audio quality isn't always of a studio standard, but more than good enough to get all the information you need. And you'll only hear my voice a couple of times just to clarify what's been said. I hope you're keeping well and we'll speak to you soon. And let's get on with the webinar. Hello, everyone. Welcome to uh, our first COVID-19 Journal Club from Manchester Royal Infirmary and uh, the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. I'm Rick Boddy. First time we've done this, and we hope that we're going to do this roughly once a week. We'll appraise some of the latest literature, great way of finding out the latest in coronavirus research and then applying it to our practice. We've been doing Journal Club every week at the Manchester Royal Infirmary for quite a number of years and we find it a really, really important element of our practice actually, a chance to appraise the, the, uh, the latest evidence and then actually discuss how it relates to our clinical practice. So that's what we hope to do here. So that brings us on to some introductions. Hey, I'm Rick Boddy, Professor of Emergency Medicine in Manchester, got an interest in diagnostics. And I'm now going to hand to Paul Clapper. Paul Clapper, Professor of Clinical Virology at the University of Manchester. Hello, I'm Charlie. I'm an EM trainee and NHR doctoral research fellow. Hi, I'm uh, Pam Valley. I'm Professor of Medical Virology at the University of Manchester. Hi, I'm Anissa Jafar. I'm an EM trainee and academic clinical lecturer at the University of Manchester. Hi, I'm Simon Carley from St Emlyn's. I also work with Rick. Uh, so really a uh, privilege that everyone here can join us. Really expert panel. So thanks a lot for taking the time out. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to go through uh, one paper in more detail. So Charlie's going to take through us through a deep dive of a paper published by Guanatal in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, looking at the clinical characteristics of coronavirus disease. And then we're going to discuss that. Following that, we're going to have some rapid fire reviews. So we want to cover as much evidence as we possibly can in the short time that we've got available. So we've got five papers. We're going to summarise them very succinctly for you and then discuss the implications of them. So without further ado, let's move on to our first paper with Charlie going to tell us about this paper from the New England Journal by Guan et al. Guan et al set out to do a retrospective cohort study examining confirmed cases of COVID-19 in China. They only looked at PCR-confirmed cases, so there are no suspected cases in this cohort. They looked at this very early in uh, the epidemic in China. They looked from the 11th of December through to the 29th of January. The data was extracted locally and transferred to a central site um, where three external clinical academics reviewed the data. They had a fairly robust method for seeking out missing data and to a degree, their data was cross-checked to look for any abnormalities. They seemed to have the appropriate ethics in place to conduct this review. They had one primary composite endpoint, which was either an ICU admission, mechanical ventilation, i.e. being tubed, or unfortunately the patient passing away. They found 1,099 patients. Now, doesn't seem like a lot, but at the time, 
there were only just over 7,700 cases in the whole of China. So that's quite a large proportion. And actually, they got 29.7% of hospitals in China to submit at least one case. So they had quite a good capture um, within the time frame they were in. Of those cases, 72.3% of them had contact with someone from Wuhan, and 25.9% of them didn't have contact from anyone within Wuhan. The median age was 47. Most of them were male, and 23.7% of them had a coexisting condition. Interestingly, and something we'll come back to later, was that 85% of the patients in the study never smoked which might be low for China. Moving on to some of the results that they showed through, the main bit of uh, this paper and one of the strongest points is describing the symptomology um, of COVID-19. And that is one of the strengths. It was really variable. There were low respiratory tract symptoms, upper respiratory tract symptoms, and vaguer viral symptoms. It went from cough at 67%, fever at 43%, Fatigue, 38%. Sputum production, 33%. Myalgia, nearly 15%. Headache, 13.6%. Sore throat, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. So there's a really wide range of symptoms that they described here. They also, on admission, categorised people into severe and non-severe pneumonia. Now, this was according to an American definition from the American thoracic society, and they defined that 15.7% of patients had a severe pneumonia. They also went on to describe the characteristics of various blood results and imaging results for these patients. Some of the more interesting bits are around the full blood count findings. As most of you may already be aware, lymphocytopenia was a major feature here. 83% of patients on admission had lymphocytopenia. Thrombocytopenia was quite prevalent at 36%, and leukopenia at 33.7%. The CT findings were quite interesting. They found that 86% of all patients had an abnormal CT finding. 56% had ground glass opacities. They managed to do an interesting analysis around median incubation, i.e. the time from exposure to the time from symptoms. Now, unfortunately, this wasn't possible in all of their patient cohort. They only got it in just over a quarter of them because of incomplete data. But they found a median time from exposure to first presentation of symptoms to be four days, which is an interesting statistic to think about. The median length of stay in hospital was 12 days. A lot of these patients got antibiotics, 58%. Just over a third got Tamiflu and 41.3% received some sort of oxygen therapy. In terms of the primary endpoint that they described, that composite endpoint of death, ICU admission and death, ICU admission and being tubed, uh, they found that uh, 6.1% of their cohort had it. However, there are some issues with that. So that's the overview of the study. Retrospective cohort study captured just over a 1,000 of the 7,700 cases that were going on at the time. It was pulled together really quickly. They had some good data validation measures and they've described the symptomology and some of the investigation findings really nicely. Thanks a lot, Charlie. So Pam, one of the things that, that struck me about this paper was how few of the patients being admitted to hospital had fever. And for, is it 43% on admission? Although you know most of them went on to develop fever later on. It sort of shows the evolving nature of the, the symptoms because, you know, certainly that's all we've been talking about. You know, have you got a fever? Have you got a fever? And it just goes to show that perhaps many people at the beginning of this illness don't have a fever. Paul, 
what do you make of this paper? I recently reviewed a, a paper from China showing that many of the patients have co-infections, co-infections with other viral respiratory pathogens, but also bacterial and fungal pathogens in association with the hospitalised cases. So, you know, maybe dealing with quite complex infection events in these patients. Simon? I think, I think it is interesting that we're in this dilemma generally with the evidence around uh, COVID-19 is that it's emerging right in front of us and we all feel this sort of pressure to, to find out what's happening and to, to get the data out there as quickly as possible. And that's good. But it does mean that in this study, a lot of the patients hadn't actually completed their clinical course. So when we're looking at the, the, which factors appear to predict a serious outcome or which factors are predictive of the, the course of the disease, we just simply don't know because the patients haven't yet completed it. And that's a real problem, I think. This data has then been used as these are the features that we're looking for. And, and as Pam says, that you know it's, it's an evolving condition. We don't quite know what's going on. I, th I think the quality of the data here is, is, is very, very provisional. We're not really going to have a, a good idea of, of the strength around these risks until we've seen a large cohort of people complete their disease process. There's, there's a plethora of findings here. Charlie took us through many of them, but the biomarkers, for example, took me is particularly interesting. You can see here, they've got cutoffs for each biomarker, for example, CRP above 10, procalcitonin above 0.5. And in all patients, you can see how many patients fulfilled that criteria, those criteria. But here we can also see stratified by disease severity and by whether they developed the composite primary uh, endpoint that Charlie described. So from that, we can then start to see whether the biomarker were having any prognostic value. Um, so you can see, for example, if the prevalence of a high CRP was higher in patients with more severe disease than in non-severe disease, and it was actually identifying a, a more sick population. And we can see that that's true. 81.5% of the cases that were severe had a high CRP compared to 56.4% of the non-severe. This is where we get our data on uh, LDH, for example, being useful in this context, that LDH is more commonly raised in patients with severe disease, a lot of liver function tests, the ALT, AST, bilirubin, and also, interestingly, the dimer here, which was higher in the patients with severe disease. What do you take out of that? I mean, do you think that's something that we should use in our practice? Do you think these markers are all markers that we should be measuring? I'm going to be sceptical again, I'm afraid, sorry, Rick, on this, because the numbers are quite small. And they've said in their paper that they're not going to present these numbers with confidence intervals because it is a purely descriptive paper. The sort of the back of the fag packet calculation of precision of those estimates and whether or not they are true differences, when you're getting down to numbers of around about 50 patients, I think we've got to be quite cautious about it. I think there's a signal here and we need to think about how we use those in, in future. I'm, I'm still a little bit cautious. I'm still a little bit um, sceptical. Quite a lot of patients have normal chest x-rays. We see in total that 59.1% patients having abnormal chest x-rays, whereas 86.2% had abnormalities on a CT scan, suggesting that the sensitivity of the CT scan will be greater. So do you think that means that CT scans should be used routinely in this patient group? Is the chest x-ray usurped? Charlie? Well, there's some prospective data out of Italy, which reinforces that point and in fact put punts at a higher sensitivity than that data might suggest. And the, but the problem with all of this is that the gold standard diagnostics of the PCR detection of uh, SARS-CoV-2 might not be that sensitive in and of itself. I'm not sure we actually know with any degree of certainty, how sensitive that test is. Pam, have you got any thoughts on that? I think that one of the, the main issues with the sensitivity of the swabs is, is in the testing. I'll probably hand over to Paul in a moment because he's done a lot more work around this than I have. But as I understand it, most swabs that 
are initially negative and then turn out to be positive and, and negative again are because there's, the swab hasn't been taken properly. You have to really get right down into the throat to, to, to get a, a proper sample. Paul, I'm sure you, you've got more you can say about that. It's well known that the quality of the swab is really, really important. We learned that in the influenza A, H1N1 pandemic. You get such variation when you increase the number of people taking throat swabs. People who have never taken a throat swab before start swabbing patients. And their idea of a throat swab is you pop it in the mouth and waggle it about 10 centimetres in front of the uh, tonsils and call that a, a throat swab. And then even though you're using super sensitive test, diagnostic tests, you're looking for vanishingly small amounts of virus in a poorly taken swab. So the Achilles heel of all the testing is really the quality of that swabbing. And we did try in H1N1 different ways of improving sensitivity, taking nose and throat swabs combined and trying to do throat washings. But really, you cannot beat a good, well-taken throat swab. I wonder, therefore, Paul, if actually part of, based on what you're saying, if part of the problem with the diagnostic, with the PCR assays, is that not just the sensitivity, of the analytical sensitivity of the test, but also the training of the clinicians, careful about how we, how we take it. Also, of course, in hospitalised patients and the seriously ill, the sensitivity of the PCR reduces as infection descends to the lung. And then you may need samples from the lung to actually be able to monitor the infection because essentially the infection's moved. There's a, maybe another time we'll cover a paper which shows a sensitivity of different sample types as well, which, uh, which was quite interesting. Clinically, in Manchester at least, we're not routinely using chest CT for our patients. We use chest X-ray as a first line. And I think from a pragmatic point of view, I'm going to carry on doing that because most of these patients that I'm seeing do have characteristic changes. Simon, would, would you see that you'll routinely change practice to using CT on the first line? I think we could use CT in those patients in whom there's a diagnostic dilemma because we are seeing some patients and it might not be that we whether or not we think they're COVID but we may think there'll be a coexisting pathology and we I think the conversations we've had we've all worried about missing the patient with a PE or assuming that everything is COVID-19 so I think there will be the patients who've got diagnostic uncertainty and of course the other modality which we're using for which there isn't fantastic data for yet you know, there's some again observational data that's better than chest x-ray is ultrasound very true yeah yeah which, um, we have let, let's not go there we don't want to stop I, I don't want to open the ultrasound box today so we've got two questions I think this is a, a really nice question. I think it's a really pertinent question, personally. But what is the gold standard to which we are comparing PCR and CT? What would you say is the gold standard for, for COVID infection? How can we compare PCR against itself? In, in PCR, we can measure the amount of viral RNA that we are detecting. And there are moves to develop international standards. So everybody measures their PCR amount of RNA in exactly the same way, but those international standards are not yet available. What we do have available is digital PCR, which allows us to quantitate the amount of uh, virus present in the samples. And we know the range of digital PCR copies of RNA that we can detect in the sample. The gold standard really is, is to have a PCR which will detect RNA anywhere within that range. The caveat is it depends on the quality of the sample. So if it's a throat swab, we're going to get variable quality of samples. If it's a bronchialveolar lavage, you have the effects of, of dilution of the of samples as you get the samples from the lungs. So there is a range. But in terms of sensitivity, we know that most of the current PCRs, the latest generation, uh, particularly the one that's going to be used for the mass screening of, of healthcare staff, has got three independent targets for the, the SARS 
CoV-2 virus in it. So the sensitivity now is very, very good. And we're not getting false negatives in the PCR, other than the the fact that some of the samples will have very low levels of virus present in them. So the PCR test is quite good. The first ones that appeared in Europe was, a, was on January the 11th, and that's been continuously refined going forward. And it's the same with all of the laboratory tests. They've been refined, in, refined steadily in improving sensitivity. The ones that we've got now are, the ones that are being used now are the best that we have available, and they are the most sensitive we've had thus far in the, in the pandemic. Just to add to that very quickly, um, we're also designing a diagnostic accuracy study and I find that the gold standard is, uh, is very challenging. So we are working on the principle that we'll actually have to use an adjudicated diagnosis using all of the different modalities, imaging and PCR together. But uh, of course, how you evaluate the sensitivity of, of CT, for example, as a standalone is very difficult because you, you're really just comparing different methods and otherwise the adjudicated diagnosis, you're going to have some incorporation bias, whereas the CT forms part of the gold standards so very good question better move on to our rapid fire round where we're going to talk through five papers first of all we're going to go to pam to summarize this uh, really interesting study looking at ace2 receptors in covid19 infection this paper again come out of china from from zoo et al and it's really looking to try and provide an explanation for the multi-organ failure that that we're seeing with some covid patients which is you know unusual with the coronavirus infection so <clears throat> it's known that that SARS-CoV-2 and SARS before it share a similar spike protein that has a strong binding affinity to the uh, angiotensin converting enzyme type 2 the ACE2 receptor and so the the you know widespread understanding is that cells expressing ACE2 can be target cells for for the virus uh, for example alveolar type 2 lung cells so here the um, authors are hypothesizing that that the ACE2 expression pattern in various organs, tissues and cells might dictate the way that the coronavirus spreads around the body. What they did was to, to look at some already uh, existing published data that's held in various databases, sequence databases in various organisations. So they looked at, at single cell RNA sequencing where they take next generation sequencing technology to look at what messenger RNA is being expressed in an in a individual cell. And that sort of says what that individual cell potentially, what proteins could be produced um, from that individual cell. And they looked at that in all the different tissue types shown. Based on that, they concluded that the organs in red there. That's the lung, respiratory tract, esophagus, heart, kidney, ileum and bladder. Um, have got high ACE2 expression and therefore might be much more susceptible to invasion by the virus and the, the ones in grey least susceptible. That's the nasal mucosa, bronchus, liver and stomach. I, I think there are some, some strengths to this paper and you know nobody's looked at that before that's a, a really interesting thing. I think there's also some weaknesses what they're measuring is ACE2 expression they're not measuring viral infection there not sort of thinking about the roles of secondary infections or sepsis or inflammatory processes and so on so, so liver is in grey there and we know that, that some patients not many but some patients do have serious liver problems as well with this uh, infection and not related to this paper but there's been a couple of very recent papers again out from China from Chu et al, which are suggesting the exact opposite. In fact, that there's a negative association with ACE2 expression and viral infection. You know, I think it's interesting. I think it's something that, that needs further uh, looking at, but it's by no means kind of a map to where you should be looking, I think, for, for this virus in, in your patients. Thanks a lot, Pam. It was really interesting to read this paper because I think it 
you've got everybody thinking about the importance of the ACE2 uh, receptor pathway. Uh, you can see the clear correlation between what we've read in the paper bag one and what we see in the clinical environment. The areas where ACE2 is, is expressed in, in, in abundance here, because we see the pneumonia, we see possibly myocarditis, certainly cardiac complications. We see diarrhea. We see anecdotally, and I'm not seeing this published, but we see plenty of patients with dysuria. And we get upper respiratory tract infections. We get liver function abnormalities. So all of those areas, we see symptoms and biomarker derangements. So it has passes sort of face validity from a, from a clinical perspective. Is this going to change anything for us? It does link into the purported mechanism of why perhaps some people suffer from coronavirus much more severely than others, because we do know there's quite a lot of polymorphism around the ACE receptors. This has been described in critical illness in the past, because one of the things from a clinical perspective is why is it that some people are getting these incredibly mild diseases and why are others getting the cardiovascular collapse, the severe lung infection and are producing more gastrointestinal effects? It makes you wonder whether or not this is one of the potential mechanisms for that. And also there's been the controversy, as I'm sure you've seen, papers in the Lancet around the use of things like ARBs, angiotensin receptor blockers and ACE2 medications. And again, whether or not that is a feature in why we might perhaps be seeing more people with diabetes and hypertension apparently having worse outcomes in several of the papers. For me, this related back to maybe a bit of a metacognition type standpoint in that we have to have humility with this disease because the, this paper came out and suddenly we realised, oh, that's why they get abdominal pain, maybe. Maybe that's why we're seeing dysuria. The pathophysiology is still emerging. For me personally, it reminded me that there's a lot we don't know and to sort of rock back my own certainty when treating patients with this. It doesn't explain the CNS manifestations, of course, like anosmia, severe headaches. We seem to have seen what appears to be encephalitis. So it doesn't necessarily explain that to us, unfortunately. So next, we're going to look at non-randomised open-label trial of a hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin for COVID-19 infection. So I was going to summarise this one for you. This has uh, received a lot of attention, I think, um, and uh, the, the benefits of hydroxychloroquine. I mean, it's done and, done and dusted to Donald, I think. This trial was actually quite small. So in France, they managed to get approval to run this trial of, I think, ultimately 36 patients or so, in whom they, were, they gave hydroxychloroquine to 26 patients with COVID-19 infections. And they had 16 controls who weren't given hydroxychloroquine. Now, there was no randomization process. So how they selected those patients, we're not entirely sure. Uh, and some of the patients also received azithromycin. So six patients who received hydroxychloroquine also got azithromycin. There was some loss to follow-up, unfortunately, as well. So six patients in the hydroxychloroquine group were lost to follow-up. And the reasons were interesting. So of those patients lost to follow-up uh, and who didn't continue hydroxychloroquine, in three of them it was because they were admitted to intensive care and one of them had died. So they were fairly important outcomes. And what they what they studied was the viral load of the patients. So they measured the viral load for patients. And by, by day six, the headline figures tell us that 70% uh, of patients in the hydroxychloroquine group were cured virologically compared to 12.5% in the control group. And of the six who got azithromycin as well, well, 100% of them were cured by day six. So the headline figures of this here were these impressive graphs here, which show hydroxychloroquine group viral load decreasing. And when you add in azithromycin, 
this green line shows decreasing even more, which look impressive. But of course, it's not randomized. There are some really significant limitations, including the loss to follow up, the bias that that introduces. Can we take anything from that trial? Simon, what do you think? Um, I'm not a fan. Um, I think it's I think it's interesting. And again, it, it speaks to this balance that we, we all need to know what's going on. And we need to try and find out as quickly as possible because it's a significant disease. But there's really very little evidence here apart from proof of concept. And I think it's entirely reasonable on the back of this to look at both hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin as part of ongoing clinical trials. So I think there's, there's enough data here for us to be interested, but it's not conclusive. And I certainly don't think there's, there's not enough here to advocate for giving those drugs at this time outside of an RCT. That's my feeling. And if I get coronavirus, I'd be very happy to be randomised into that trial. I, I totally agree with you there, Simon. You know, we, we can't take anything definitive from this study. The basis for the trial was that there are in vitro effects of hydroxychloroquine on uh, the uh, SARS-CoV-2. So uh, Pam and Paula could just briefly ask you for a quick comment on that. I and mean, what, what are your feelings about this, the theory behind hydroxychloroquine being a potential new therapy? Well, it's sort of bringing it in from HIV treatment. You're giving the hydroxychloroquine chloroquine to try and boost immune clearance of virus and the AZT is like the early days of treatment of HIV. It's a relatively broad spectrum antiviral. There are anecdotal reports from around the world. I've got one here from France where they treated 985 patients with this combination, had 12 deaths in one study, 1.2%, and there's another 1,003 that were treated, and they had one death, 0.1%. So it really reinforces there might be something here, but we really need a proper randomised clinical control trial of it and see if it, it really does have the effect it seems to. But it's certainly not one to reject. So let's move on to the next paper. So yes, this is another um, paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at lipinavir ritonavir, which is in the UK known as Kaletra, an older HIV drug which again has shown some promise in vitro against the, the coronavirus. And this is an RCT, so it's slightly better than the, the previous paper, where they randomised in an open-label way, so no placebo, people knew whether they were going to get the drug or not, around about 199 patients, 99 in one arm, 100 in the other, to either treatment with the lipinavir ritinavir or just normal treatment. And they looked at time to clinical improvement and the way that their primary outcome worked is they have a seven-point scale, which is a sort of a sort of categorical scale that goes from not hospitalised, doing the normal thing, or right up to ECMO, death, invasive ventilation, oxygen requirements, and stuff like that. It's a way of sort of categorising how sick you are. And the main outcome here was whether or not they improved by two points. The headline figure here is that it didn't make a lot of difference. But I wouldn't want people to go and have a look at this paper, similar to the last one, and say, well, that shows that it doesn't work. There's a number of difficulties with this paper. It's quite small, so you'd be very pretty lucky to see one drug making such a big effect in that limited amount of time on its own. With this number of patients, it, it would be a surprise. It'd have to be a massive treatment effect. So I don't think we should knock it down for, for that reason. There's quite a lot of signal in the secondary outcomes, which we pre were predefined in this, that there may be advantages in terms of the time that people spent on ICU, the severity indices of some of their, of some of their illness, things like um, ICU length of stay, and potentially things like 28-day mortality. And when I was looking at the paper, I was thinking that we're looking at a disease, which the, the major thing for us is really it kills people. And the, the most important outcome here, I think, is, is 
survival. And the second, the, I would have had that. And I think we need the trial with survival or still on ICU as an outcome for this trial. It's not definitive, but I'm very pleased to say that both this drug, this combination of drugs, and hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin are now part of the recovery trial, which we're running in the UK and which we're running here in in Manchester. We've recruited in in our trust over 110 patients now in a week. So we're getting large numbers of people into randomised control trials with a 28-day outcome. This is a national study. There are thousands of patients now in these trials. So these are interesting signals, but I think we'll need to wait a little bit longer until we've got a definitive patient-related outcome measure to decide whether they work or not. Brilliant. Thanks, Simon. Again, I wonder if Pam and Paul uh, have a comment from a, from a virology perspective about the uh, use of these antiretrovirals in, in this kind of uh, situation. Kalitra is very well established. It's a combination of two protease inhibitory drugs. It's very well established in HIV treatment. It is associated with some side effects, but of course, fortunately, in this case, the side effects are synonymous with the symptoms of COVID infection. There is interesting data. They, they have tried this in China, and, and there's mixture mixture of reports of it being successful and not successful. There was an interesting one that Ian Hampson, who's a professor of viral oncology here in Manchester, had come across from one of his collaborators, which was a combination trial of Kalitra plus a Russian antiviral called Arbidol, and they treated something like 1,200 patients. Again, not in a, a randomised controlled trial, but they treated 1,234 with this combination of Kalitra and Arbidol and, and had only one death. So there probably is something very useful in Kalitra, either alone or in combination with another drug. That's great. So lo- loads of promising drug therapies. Um, we've talked about hydroxychloroquine, potentially azithromycin, the antiretrovirals, Losartan been talked about as well. And then there's all of the uh, immune therapies that might be useful for the potential cytokine storm. So loads of promising stuff, potentially in the pipeline. We'll have to wait and see. Shall we move on to our next study? And I think, Anissa, this is you. This time, looking at the prevalence of venous thromboembolism in patients who have the novel coronavirus infection. Thanks, Rick. So the, the, the title of this paper probably says a little bit more about what we're hoping to get from it than what we actually do. And I think that's the first caveat I would I would put out there. So essentially, this is a paper um, that was produced from, uh, again, um, goes come out of China. It is looking at 81 patients that were diagnosed with what they've described as novel coronavirus pneumonia who were in an intensive care environment. We don't have an enormous amount of detail about what that means about the clinical state they were in. The the, the headline findings were that around 25% of these patients had DBT. So that's 20 out of 81 patients. Part of what comes from the paper is an attempt to suggest that if you look at a D-dimer level of point. 0.25 micrograms per mil, you can get an 85% sensitivity, an 88.5% specificity, and a negative predictive value of 94.7%. And these are the kind of headline details about this study. I think, I suppose, the difficulty I have when reading it is I'm not sure 
how much this really adds to what we do or don't know already when it comes to whether it's coronavirus patients or or any critically unwell patient that's requiring ICU. Um, And the devil's a little bit in the detail um, because you can get a little bit blinded by the numbers. But some of the commentary is obviously all based around small numbers of patients. But comments like older people who have more underlying diseases are more likely to develop venous thromboembolism is not really something that I think any of us would consider to be new or novel, but there's been being put forward as an association perhaps with coronavirus. Again, the commentary around abnormal blood coagulation being associated with poor prognosis, again, is this a signal that comes from coronavirus pneumonia? Or So that's a little bit tricky. And, and the, the detail around the patients doesn't allow you to pull that apart very well. And again, we've got to remember that this is a very, very small number of patients. So it's, it, it's difficult to, to to know what to say about this type of paper in some respects information is, is good in other respects it adds to a collection of information that may distract, detract away from what we need to be finding out which is the characteristics of the disease and perhaps not thinking about things more generally what was interesting was that none of these patients received thromboprophylaxis and that just slips in there in, in the methodology so what anybody takes from this it's very very difficult to say whether it's relevant irrelevant, I don't want to be disrespectful to the authors. What is useful is the table that talks about the characteristics of the patients. Again, it adds to our collection of information about age ranges, about whether they have hypertension, diabetes, certainly a large, a relatively large proportion had coronary, um, coronary heart disease. This, they've characterised that 12% had coronary heart disease, 43% smoked. Yeah. It was a large number of male patients. Again, in keeping with all of the information that we have, I haven't got an enormous amount of positive to say, negative to say, it's very neutral. But at the same time, I'm concerned about the level of noise that is created by information that may actually be detracting from what we want to find out. Thanks, Anissa. I think this one has really put the cat amongst the pigeons, though, really, in making us think about this. We heard about the D-dimer levels being predictive. How does it affect our practice, then? What are we going to do? We're going to do not just a CT chest, but a CTPA for all of our patients? I'm not sure that we can make that decision based on this paper. I mean, the diagnosis of VT in these patients was by a Doppler. It would appear that all the patients received a Doppler, not for any particular reason other than just course of practice. I'm not sure if that's something that we all do in all of our ICU patients globally on a more regular basis. So again, it's difficult to know. And I say the devil's in the detail because what will often come from papers like this is a a bit of noise and a bit of chatter around D-dimers, around venous thromboembolism, the significance. And actually, we're still at the very early stages of actually understanding about the disease itself. Well, certainly um, our intensivists tell me that they're seeing a lot of thrombotic complications and not just VTE in these patients with coronavirus infection and um, it does make you think something that something must be going on in this situation so um, certainly at least raises a red flag to us to, to think about VTE in these patients how we actually deal with it who knows and whether we what prophylaxis dose we should use whether we should get them treatment dose a low molecular weight happen who knows it's early days but certainly tells us that we ought to be thinking about it. We'd better be moving on to our last paper, which Simon's going to take us through, Prediction Models for Diagnosis and Prognosis of COVID-19 Infection, which is a systematic review. Yeah, so this is just going to be a quickie, really, which I think in some ways is going to encompass what we've been talking about as we've been going along. This is a paper that was published in the BMJ just last weekend, where a group of researchers led by uh, Law Wynance have gone through and had a look, systematic review, of all the papers out there looking at prediction models for either diagnosis or prognosis around COVID-19. Because that's what we want at the moment, isn't it? We want to know 
what the good quality evidence is out there. We now to have a model which is going to help us diagnose the patients. We need a model which is going to help us prognosticate for them, both you know what their, their future clinical course is and whether they're going to survive the illness. That, that's kind of what we're seeking. And there's a lot of data that's flying around out there. We've looked at six papers today, um, but there's plenty more knocking around. People are making decisions on these papers which are published. However, if you look at the quality of those papers, maybe quality is not the right word because it's an evolving picture. But what if we look at the the scientific basis for the predictive models, it's actually pretty poor. And there are some common themes that we find in these papers, some of which the, the sort of papers we've discussed today is that they'll just look at ICU patients and say, well, the incidence of DVT or uh, VT is this but not compare it with another group of ICU patients. So do we know whether it's better or do we know whether it's worse? And they'll take a group of patients and they say, we've got this model and this model predicts exactly what would happen with the group of patients that we've seen. But we then haven't validated that in another group to know whether it was just overfitted with the group that we've seen. And, you know, Rick's work in particular and, and the group here in Manchester have got a huge experience in diagnostics. And we would never suggest that a, a tool is predictive until we validated it in different settings in different groups. And again, going back to Anissa's paper, we routinely give thromboprophylaxis to every patient that's admitted. That's a, not just in COVID every patient is admitted unless there's a reason not to. So that's clearly a very different group to us. And this whole thing means that we are in a really frustrating, but also fascinating time for evidence-based medicine in that we're actually seeing it happen in front of us. And we're seeing the publications come through. We've got to keep our critical heads on. We've got to look at the data. We've got to go back to critical appraisal tools and processes and say, okay, that's really interesting. There may be a signal here, but are we sure? And so it's a nice little review there. If you want to do a bit of evidence-based medicine, you can definitely have a look through it. And as I said, the key things in the paper were predominantly around bias, around what the participants were. So looking at special interest groups in particular, and then things like using a predictive tool, which wouldn't be available at the time when you were using it. So there's no point in having CT, angiogram, as a predictive tool for somebody who might be using it in community. So lots and lots of interest there. I'm sure things are going to get better as the data comes, which is why we need to carry on doing what we're doing. Thanks, Simon. Really nice appraisal. And a really good uh, illustration of how we need to get the balance right, because in this context, we've got to move fast, we've got to be agile, and we want to be early adopters. But we've still got to strike that balance between, you know, uh, trying to do things rapidly to respond to this catastrophic situation that we're in, but also trying to keep some standard of evidence-based medicine around. So, I mean, I guess there's some value in the evidence that's being presented, but these prediction models, you know, have a limit and that we perhaps just can't take them off the shelf and use them as they, as they are. We can take some value from the data that's being presented. I go back under these circumstances to a quote which we picked up several years ago, presented at SMAC from Maya Angelou. We should do the best that we can until we know better. And when we know better, we should do better. And I think we're going to see an awful lot of that over the next few months. That right now, this is the best we've got. Let's do this. New evidence. It changes. I love the word agile at the moment. I think it's, the, it's going to be the key determinant of whether we do this well is our ability to be intellectually and organisationally agile. And it seems like we're doing a lot of about turns at the moment, turning 180 degrees and going the opposite direction. But ultimately, we will get there. As I say, I think it's an incredibly interesting although sometimes terrifying and incredibly sad, an incredibly interesting time to be in clinical medicine.
So on that note, that's a really nice way to wrap up, really, at the end of this Journal Club. Just is to say thanks to all of our panellists. Charlie, wanted to ask a question here. Have you seen an interesting paper? I think this is your call to, for people to contribute to your Archem initiative. Yeah, so uh, every week we're publishing uh, the top five papers that's coming from the Archem CPG COVID team. Um, and we're pushing it out and we're, uh, it's open for anyone to uh, send an interesting paper with a little paragraph uh, written about it and we'll publish it either in the top five or there'll be a director's cut version that'll come out every few weeks. Put a link out on Twitter after this. So if you see anything interesting, please let us know. Just to mention, we are going to do this again next week, COVID Journal Club, with another rapid fire coverage of the literature and a deep dive into one paper. So I hope you've enjoyed it. Give us any feedback you can um, so we can make it better for next time and uh, keep safe, everybody. 